Let us open our copies of God's Word to Psalm 10, please, to Psalm 10. And Psalm 10 itself is pretty well in two halves, and we will examine it in two parts as well. Psalm 10, but we will read this evening verses 1 to 11, as we've sung them. itself is in two parts, verse 1 or verse 1 and 2 and then the rest until 11 and you'll hear that difference as we open up the word. Psalm 10, why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. His ways are always grievous. Thy judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he puffeth at them. He hath said in his heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. He sitteth in the lurking places of the villagers. In the secret places doth he murder the innocent. His eyes are privily set against the poor. He lieth in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lieth in wait to catch the poor. He doth catch the poor when he draweth him into his net. He croucheth and humbleth himself that the poor may fall by his strong ones. He hath said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see it. Amen. So having completed uh, Psalm 9, we commence Psalm 10. And that's an obvious statement, of course. Unless you're a Roman Catholic, and that Psalm 10 is not this Psalm 10 Psalm 9 and 10 have been joined together to make one large psalm. And they have this because it's based upon the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's not even based upon Jerome's translation from the Hebrew. They didn't accept that to put into their Bibles, but they have a translation of a translation. Which means that their Psalm 10 is actually Psalm 9, and our Psalm 11 is their Psalm 10. So the whole of their Psalms are shifted. So if you would go to Roman Catholic, say Psalm 23 is one of my favorite Psalms, and they would think, well, you're speaking about the Lord, and the gates open wide and let the King of glory enter in. You think, no, the Lord's my shepherd. Oh, Psalm 22. So that's shifted out of place. We could say, well, that's a reflection of how their whole theology is shifted out of place, but. But it means that they would only have 149 psalms, which would have been the situation with the old Greek translation of the Bible, but they added an extra one, uh, which we would call Psalm 151, but not in the regular canon of Scripture by any means. 
but they would call Psalm 150. And that is not in the original Hebrew. And because we only accept the oracles of God that were given to the Jews, we only accept the Hebrew scriptures for the Old Testament. Um, and I'm quoting there from Romans 3 and verse 1 and 2. To understand why we therefore do not accept, as many modern translations do, any of the vagaries you'll find in the, in, 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 in the Septuagint, uh, which in the later books, uh, as in, so not, 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 not the history books that we have uh, from Moses, but in many of the later books, especially the Proverbs, especially, sorry, the prophets, the minor prophets and major prophets, are in some ways an absolute mess. But they add an extra, an extra psalm, Psalm 151, they would call it 150, which is actually a, a bit of a story um, that, we have, that, that, that exists, not in the Scriptures. In fact, the earliest that we found has been in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Something about David and Goliath, David meeting Goliath and cutting off his, off his head. Anyway, that's a bit of background and extra information. But Psalm 10 is not part of Psalm 9. And we can say that for a number of reasons, not only because that's how the Jews have it, and that's how we're to have it, um, but it doesn't, it doesn't follow that same sort of partial acrostic that the Psalm 9 had. Remember we are talking about Psalm 9, that it sort of followed a lot of the Hebrew alphabet in places and repeated uh, letters of the alphabet, no, nowhere near as clear and strict as Psalm 119, but it is in there. Uh, but this has none of that. It doesn't even continue on that pattern in any way. It doesn't even continue in exact the same language and themes. It, it is in many ways, it is a study, uh, especially in the heart of it, a study of the wickedness of the wicked. And that's really what we're looking at when we look at verses 2 to 11. Um, so it, it's looking at, at maybe some similar things, but it's not looking with the same language, or using the same language or with the same mix of themes and we don't have to think that it's a continuation anyway uh, because we have that clear full stop in verse 20 of Psalm 9. It, it, it closes off the psalm. It rounds off everything that's been said in the psalm and then we have that selah added as a full stop. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't follow on even in language. So we come to a new psalm which, is, which uh, as I said, has at the very heart an examination of the wicked, but we could say this, it reflects the age-old conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's a, a very strong uh, truth that we see. And as usual, we see, yes, this must be something of the psalmist's own experience. It's not declared to be of David, but whoever the psalmist uh, is or was, something of their own experience, something of their own petition, their prayer, and as we understand uh, that oftentimes, if not every time, the psalmist represents the church as, uh, uh, and individual members of the church, so he, he's not just speaking of himself. It's quite often the experience, and we'll see this ourselves uh, as we look at verse 1, that we can have that, that same petition, that same plaintive cry, Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? And because the psalmist is involved, because he's writing uh, these, uh, this infallible word of God, uh, because it is the word of Christ, to use Paul's expression uh, for the Psalms, we see something of Christ is also uh, revealed in there. 
And we definitely see that as, as Christ being the, the Lord, st- apparently standing afar off, etc. It's the second part that we'll see more of the Lord himself directly. But the, as I said, that central part of the psalm, verses 2 to 11, is one long description of the wicked, of the, of the, 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 the seed of the serpent, their sinful thoughts, their sinful actions, their sinful motivations. And this describes all who are by nature the children of wrath. So that's all of mankind. All of mankind, as our brother well preached on the Lord's Day evening from Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3. That, that, that everyone who is a child of wrath, walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And so therefore the description of the wicked is a description of all of mankind. It very much represents and describes the reprobate who will never repent, will never be saved. It describes certainly the redeemed before they are saved, as verse 3 says, you know, that we were children of wrath as others uh, before we were saved. But it unfortunately also describes the sinful nature that the redeemed still have. And it's good to have a spotlight to be shone upon this sinful nature uh, that we would then be more aware of it, be more wary of it, uh, and understand, yeah, I recognize some of these things. In fact, maybe I recognize more than just a few of these things that is in my nature, in my heart, it's in my thoughts, it's, it's in my desire. I receive grace of God to, 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 to suppress them, to sustain them, but I must admit I see something uh, of them. And so that is a, uh, a, this description then is a reminder of the, the pride and the power and the pollution of the old nature which we must conquer lest it smother us, lest it cause us to backslide, lest it cause us to dishonor Christ. So we must be aware of it. It must also humble us, realizing the, the depth of our own corruption, what an offense we are, and often still are to God. And it must make us truly spiritual in realizing we cannot use corrupt flesh to control and to crucify old flesh. That's what the Pharisees were trying to do. Pharisees were trying out of flesh and out of their own instinct and their own wisdom and their own rules to be holy before God and failing miserably because flesh cannot sanctify flesh. And so having had our eyes more open to that truth, knowing that we must go to the Lord, we must seek it from the Lord, we must seek that help and that strength, we must seek His Spirit and we must seek grace so that we would, we would seek to be more like Christ, even though we be the people of Christ. Anyway, hence the non-flattering title of this study of Psalm 10 is the people of Christ described. The people of Christ uh, described. It describes more. And we can stand with a wagging finger toward the world, uh, and we often have to point out the, the errors and the wickedness and the power of the devil in the world. But we must also use the Scriptures for our own, our own help, our own rebuke, our own sanctification. The Word is a sanctifying Word after all. So, 
So examining something this part one then as we examine the first 11 verses with the Lord's gracious help, the people of Christ uh, described and we're not just seeing, we're seeing something of the people is not just in that great list of, of, of crimes of the, of the sinful nature. We begin actually with their feelings of being forsaken in verse 1, uh, verses 1 and 2 actually. Their feelings of being forsaken and it's their feelings, I'm not saying it is the truth, but it's certainly their experience that they're having because the cry goes out in two ways to God. Firstly, the distance of God in verse 1. He says, two ways, as we often have in the Hebrew. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? It's glorious the way we have that parallelism in the Hebrew, in the way the Lord, the Holy Ghost, uses that language and, and, and uh, the qualities of that language to, to show us that one truth in two different ways and yet give us about five different angles to understand the fullness of what he's actually saying. So the experience of the believer is that God is standing afar off. He, he hasn't, on the one hand, he, he sees that God is not there. He's not feeling the presence of God. He doesn't know the, the, the immediate help of God. He, he has this idea that God is standing afar off. Why? For which reason is literally in the Hebrew. For what reason standest thou afar off, O Lord? And it's not so that he's standing afar off that he can still, as it were, perceive his presence. He's saying, he's saying not just standing, afar, standing so far off that he then goes on to say, why hidest thou thyself? Why hidest thou thyself? And, and, and when is he doing it? Well, he's doing it in, in the time when the believer knows that he needs the Lord. That is in the time of trouble, the time of need, when the Lord constantly says throughout the Scriptures that call upon me in the day of trouble and I will hear thee. And then the psalmist does. He, he, he has called, it seems very clear, and he's not seeing or experiencing the, the nearness of God. And what does that do for the psalmist? And it doesn't defeat him. You say, well, that, wouldn't, that put, wouldn't, that put the, wouldn't that put the believer off? So that he's called upon the Lord and, and the Lord seems to be distant. And I might say, well, that will disappoint. That will cause the, the, the believer to think that God has forsaken him in some way. But see what it has done. It has caused the true believer to call again upon God and to be very honest with God. Not to come with some, some special, um, superficial and, and, and spiritual wording, uh, but just to be very honest with the Lord. And we know this, that we have confidence to draw nigh unto God. We have that, that boldness of approach, and that word is also translatable as frankness. That we have that, that, that access to the Lord to speak very boldly, to speak frankly, to be open and honest, that we're not sure about something, that we have our doubts about something, that we're not, that we're, you know, obviously we're not going to come with, with outright blasphemous accusations. But to say, Lord, why standest thou afar off? The Lord knows our experience. And he knows that when we're describing our experience and how we're feeling and how we're understanding something, that we're just being genuinely and honest with him. And that's certainly what the psalmist is doing. And he's describing the fact that he has been praying, and yet he knows not yet the nearness of God. He doesn't see the Lord 
uh, as it were, stepping into the situation and, and answering his prayer. He's certainly not feeling any personal comfort because he's now in the times of trouble and he expects that the Lord would do so and yet the Lord has put him under a test. He's put him to the test that in spite of the troubles, is he going to continue to call upon God? Is he going to continue, even though he thinks the Lord is far off and yet he's going to do his best to come nigh unto God? Yes, the Lord is doing this and he does it to us. Not just to the psalmist, but he does it to all of his his children to to test us, to make us realize that we're calling upon him and that we might have to put some effort into it. And maybe it's for various reasons that we don't think that we can just click our finger and God answers it. But he would have us to, to continually to call upon him. And this lesson we, we see throughout the scriptures that we would cons- that we would that we would abide in prayer and continue to pray and continue to call upon God until he answers, until he answers. Even though our immediate experience is experiencing God seemingly at a distance. I remember many, many years ago, there was a young Christian whom I spoke to, and uh, he spoke to me, and he was saying he was feeling very disconcerted because he felt exactly like the psalmist that God was so far away from him and I said hallelujah (laughs) and that that confused him immediately because I had in my mind uh, the idea that the Lord has put you under the test that the Lord for whatever reason whether that's chastisement whether that's wanting to draw you nearer to him whether that's something that the Lord is using to mature you and to sanctify you And and, and that's what I explained to him I said that's not necessarily a bad thing I said, that's the Lord drawing you. Maybe that, that's the Lord is, is also making it very clear to you that you are his child, that you are not an illegitimate offspring, but that you are truly his, and he wants you to grow, and he wants you to mature, and he wants you to uh, hold more faithfully and fully upon him and hope on him. And that's very similar, uh, or if not exact, what we see here, although he was just talking about his own emotional experience of the Lord's closeness, here the psalmist is really speaking in times of trouble. He's saying he's not even, the Lord seems to be so far away, so far away that he says the Lord is hiding himself. And he's talking about the distance of God. And as he's speaking about his own experience of God being far off, it seems, and as we work through the scriptures, we'll see, work through Psalm 10, and especially when we get to the second half, it's very clear the Lord is not far off. But as he sees the distance of God, what is he confronted with in his experience? He sees the nearness of his enemies. He's he's seeing the problem really full up in front of him. Uh, Troubles uh, are in front of him, uh, in in his face as it were. The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. This is the trouble that we see in verse 1 being explained in verse 2. The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. I mean, is he talking about the poor in money? I think, I think that is very true in a general worldwide sense that, 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 that there are many in the world, uh, not all the rich, not all the comfortably off by any means, uh, but there are plenty who would see the poor as easy prey, easy prey, they've got nothing, they've got no status, they've got no power, they've got no influence. You know, they're down a back alley trying to get some sleep and so you can, you can walk past them and kick them in the kidneys or whatever meanness there would be. Um, 
But I think it's not just talking about the poor in general, as we've looked at before. The poor is an expression used in the Psalms uh, that we see used by the Lord in the, in the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, uh, pointing to those who know themselves to be poor in spirit because they're not pride-filled anymore, because the Lord has humbled them. And so you see, the wicked in his pride doth persecute those who have been humbled by God. The poor being the believer, being, being the, 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 the child of God, who is no longer rich in his own conceit, is no longer rich in his self-righteousness, but has been humbled before the Lord. The wicked in his pride, the rich in their pride, and the poor in their pride. And let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. Here is, the, here is that petition um, that he brings very similar to that which we read a couple of times in previous psalms, is this, this desire that the Lord would deal with those people, that the Lord would deal with them, praying that the Lord would be uh, the rightful uh, avenger uh, of, of the poor, of his people. But it is that, that prayer that seeks that the Lord would deal with them. Uh, but it's exactly the same as we see in Psalm 9, if there's a link with Psalm 9. That, the, that they would not prevail, that the Lord would deal with them in the way that they have dealt with other people, that the Lord would take their wickedness and turn it upon their own heads. Certainly in the previous Psalms, I can't see it immediately in Psalm 9. But that which they have done, Lord, turn it back upon themselves. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. So this is the, this is the immediate petition and obviously clearly then maybe not obvious but clearly I would say uh, that the the wicked in their pride um, have not yet been taken in the devices that they have imagined so their 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 plans of theft of murder of 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 scurrilous gossip or whatever it might be it's still going on and 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 then the psalmist says lord let them be caught in their own traps let them be caught in their own lies in their own theft and in their own murder and so that's their feelings of being forsaken and then comes to the full description of their wickedness uh, their wickedness is the wickedness uh, of these people but i would say it's also the the, the natural wickedness the, the the sinful nature even of the people of god still remember the only the soul has been born again the spiritual side has been born again from that death, from that spiritual and moral death. Um, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. From that death is new life. And so we have a description of their wickedness, description of all the wickedness of man, describes Adam and all of his descendants, and unfortunately still describes the sinful nature of the believer. So the description of their witness of their wickedness. You see, firstly, then, in, in, in verse 3, it speaks of boasting in evil. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. There is much that we could unpack from that uh, verse, but I think we, uh, we need to move on and get to are uh, uh, allotted verses for today. But just see that there is boasting there. There is no shame 
for sins. Now, people do have shame for sin in the world, but that depends upon society around them. If society has been salted by the gospel, then people are very quiet and timid about boasting about their sins. But when society has become uh, less and less sprinkled with the salt uh, of, of genuine Christianity, uh, then, then we see what happens is what we see around us on all sorts of, on all sorts of uh, platforms and media of the world that people boast of their sins and, and their wickedness. They're not even ashamed of it. I mean, there are some things that you see that people are now being proud about um, which, are, which can't even be mentioned from a pulpit at all, not even hinted at. But the wickedness is getting further. It's not just, it's not just the sodomites and, 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 and those who would, would live a lie in, 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 uh, in behavior and dress and appearance of the opposite gender. But it goes much worse than that. And it, and it gets worse and worse with every passing month, it would seem. And they're boasting of their heart's desire. And blesseth the covetous, those that desire that which is not theirs. Well, that's a good description of the whole transgender movement, and whom the Lord abhorreth. And that's very true. The Lord abhors uh, sin full stop. And as we would read, and no doubt you have, taking your time to read through uh, Proverbs, and you'll see that so many times, the things that the Lord, you know, there are six things that the Lord hateth, nay, seven that he abhorreth. And then it just opens up uh, a number of times that, that the sins that God hates. We know that from, the, from Moses, where Moses says, you know, that, that, his, that the people of God are not to do this and this and this sin because that is what the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and all the tribes of the lands that you're entering in, the heathen have done this and, and the Lord abhorreth their sin, abhors their sins. So we see, but there's pride. They boast in their evil and they do not even cover it up. And the covetousness, of course, we understand covetousness is greed. And covetousness is ingratitude with what you have. And covetousness is also elsewhere pointed to idolatry. And idolatry. Uh, thinking of Romans 1, if we connect this, these verses with Romans 1, and again the boasting of the wicked, uh, the boasting again of the, of the sodomite uh, there, you know, encouraging others to do so, uh, boasting in it, but the Lord uh, makes it uh, very clear that that is connected with idolatry. The link between idolatry, wicked idolatry, and sodomy is very close, we see in the scriptures, but you see it in the world. As soon as the true faith in Jesus and the true gospel has been suppressed in society that was gospel-blessed, then what we see that comes forth is, 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 is well, firstly, feminism, and, 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 in, and, and in the hands of feminism, sodomy goes forth. But we've seen that, you see that in the ancient world as well, how those two are linked together, idolatry. And sodomy, and that's a good description of the Roman Catholic Church as well, by the way, when it comes to not, not your general Roman Catholic, uh, but the very the, the, the priests and the cardinals and the bishops, etc., have for, for centuries been involved in both of those things, idolatry uh, and perversity. It was the thing that broke up Martin Luther's heart, who as a Roman Catholic monk visited Rome and saw all of this going on. He saw the idolatry, he saw the, he saw the perversion, he saw the wickedness, and, and, it, and it broke his, his heart, which the Lord then mended with the gospel. So there's a boasting in evil. Uh, verse 4 sees that there's a godlessness 
in their, uh, in their life. Again, so we have the boasting and evil, but pride is also mentioned there. The wicked through the pride of his countenance. Again, brazen-faced. You know, the expression, brazen-faced. So, so, so hard, so hard that is hard as brass. Well, not, not even blushing about the, 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 the sin. Just able to, just pride-filled and, and, and speak about it. Through the pride of his countenance, he will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Now that in and of itself is one sermon to even examine that the fullness of what that means. God is not in all his thoughts. Does that mean that God desires that he be in all our thoughts? I believe so. I believe so that the, God, that the Lord desires that he would be in all our thoughts. And yet, I mean, so the Lord desires that because he desires that we would love him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. With everything, including our thoughts. He understands, of course, that we have work to do. We have telephone calls to make, that we have this business to work off, and those meetings. And that we won't be focused upon him, we won't be devoted upon him as we are in those personal, private times, family times, public times of devotion and worship. And yet, so how so often is it the case that he is not in all our thoughts? That we can, that we can make decisions not based upon uh, a prayerful reading of the word, not based upon a calling on the Lord for direction, that we can just live and, 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 and do things without God. I thank God that we have that new heart, that we have that changed inner life, that we have a desire to call upon him. And even when we can allow the flesh and the deadness of the flesh to take over, and yet the Lord still draws us to be near him. But what is terrible, of course, is that God is not in all their thoughts. His ways are always grievous. And the judgments are far above out of his sight, as for all his enemies, he puffeth at them. He's continuing with that pride and, that, uh, uh, and his, his anger towards everyone. We're looking at anger and hatred being, uh, and evil being so linked together. Uh, but he's blind to his own judgment. He's blind because he doesn't think of God. He doesn't think of that there is of God. And that's a description of the world. We see that the Ten Commandments have gone out the schools. The Bible is not even read. The people are, are not just gospel ignorant. They're Bible ignorant. And they know nothing about the scriptures. And therefore, they're open to the lies of those that would say, you know, uh, that Christianity is, is this, that, and the other. It's everything that they, you know, it's the opposite of everything that they've been told is moral and good these days. And so people sin and have no, have no conscience that is attuned to the word of God and have no conscience at all. But we see there in verse, uh, verse 5 and 6 that being blind to judgment, he's blind. He's blind to what God will do to him. Uh, he's blind to what God could do for him. He's blind in the good and in the negative way. Uh, thy judgments are far above out of his sight. He, he, he can't even see the fact that he's walking straight. He's walking on the broad way and he's walking straight into the hands of an angry God. And he hath said in his heart, I shall not be moved. He doesn't see, he do, again, becomes not easily blind to the judgment, but he's blind to the fact that he's a mortal man and he will have to meet his maker one of these days. It was linked in with that. You know, I will not be moved. And this is the blindness that you see of people, even in their very old age, still rejecting Christ, still thinking that they're good enough, 
uh, and there is no judgment, I, you know, I'll be fine. They're still blind. You think, oh yeah, such a, such, such, such a dear old lady or a dear old man, and yet when it comes to sin and it comes to God, there's again that, 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 that hardness of face suddenly appears and deadness of soul. So they're blind to judgment, and we, if you were to look at verse 7, you see the, the foulness of their mouth. What does come forth out of the heart? His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. Cursing, gossiping, slandering, lying, blaspheming. All these different things which unfortunately are still in the old sinful nature of every believer. Not exercised, hopefully. But it's still in there. It's still there. It, it must, yes, it must yet be dealt with hatred of his fellows is very much in verses 8 to 10 and we, we sang those as well he sitteth in the lurking places of the villages he's out he's out for he's out to i mean this is this is this is hatred gone gone mad it's not just hating people or or despising them or looking down upon the value of their life but this is going ahead uh, with intent to 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 draw people down even into actual physical death and that again is so much part of the sinful nature hence why the lord commands a number of places that we would love our neighbor as ourselves because we don't love our neighbor as ourselves and we must know that commandment we must hear that commandment it must be repeatedly preached upon that we would learn to love our neighbor most especially we are to love uh, the household of god but we are to love all our neighbors and we're to love even those that hate us and our, our neighbors, to love everybody. But it doesn't come naturally to anyone because that nature in the flesh is still existing. And then finally, verse 11, desires the distance of God. See, the believer, by God's grace, calls out for God in verse 1. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? And here's then the contrast between the, 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 the new nature that has been given to the believer, but the deadness of the old nature, that, that, that unbelievers have nothing else but, but even that saints have that old nature that says, he hath said in his heart, God, or three things he says, God hath forgotten, he hideth his face, he will never see it. Which, which, which you know, mirrors verse one, but in a different way, of course. Here we have that, that's, that, that, that the wicked man and the, the, the sinful nature saying that God hath forgotten. God's not interested. He's not, he's not tallying. He's not reporting. He's not getting ready for judgment. He hath forgotten. He hideth his face. And this is, of course, what, what, what the sin, sinful nature is, what the sinner wants, that, that God will not remember. He won't remember for judgment day. And he, he's hiding his face. He's not really that interested. He will never see it. And that hope will be dashed. That hope will be dashed. But the Lord does see it. But here's the, here's the glorious truth for the believer. God has seen it all. He will see it. He has seen it. But he has given it to Christ. He has given all of that sin that he knows all about to Christ. And when, he, when we are in Christ, we can then see that, well, God, in Christ, uh, God will hide his face from our wickedness. As far as the east is from the west, he has separated us from 
our sins, but this is a righteous hiding of his face. God does forget righteously because the sins have been dealt with by Christ. But for the unbeliever who has this false wish that God hath forgotten and hides his face and will never see it, it is an empty and a vain wish. And if the Lord does not draw him to Christ, then he will know this to be a lie and a false hope. He must have a true hope and a, a living hope who is Christ. And such is the sinful nature of man in general. Such is the sinful nature that still dwells with every Christian, which is why we are told a number of things in the Scriptures. I've just taken these from the New Testament, that that indwelling sinful nature must be mortified, Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 13. Mortified meaning being put to death, literally made dead. It says, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die. For if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall, you shall live. Again, what I said, corrupt flesh cannot sanctify corrupt flesh. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And we know, we know something in the, in the Scriptures where it gives us list upon list of the wickedness of man. Those things all need to be killed off. They all need to be, to be mortified. Paul says in Colossians 3 and verse 5, again the same idea, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, and he gives us a number of them, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, which includes uncontrolled emotion, evil concupiscence, that is greed, and covetousness, related to greed, but it is that desire to have that which is not yours, and he says which is idolatry, which links in what we were looking at at the beginning of this psalm. So you're not to, do not let them live in you, the apostle is saying. Do not live in them. How are you to mortify something? How are you to kill something? Well, if you think if you were to kill an animal, if you were to kill uh, an animal that was, a, that was a, a threat to you, then you'd have to do something to, to stop them living. You know, you, obviously, you would, you would starve them. Maybe in, this, in the case of uh, the, wicked, the wicked desires of the flesh, well, you would starve them of attention. Uh, you, know, you would suffocate them. You wouldn't, you wouldn't bring them out. You wouldn't allow them to live in you. You wouldn't allow them to have any life within you. You wouldn't give them any, as I said, attention. And you would willfully and prayerfully see that they would be no longer part of your character, part of your life. It wouldn't come forth in the tongue. It wouldn't come forth in the, me in the memory. So as this thought, this wicked thought, as this thought, maybe a negative thought, maybe a blasphemous thought or a, or a vicious thought against somebody else. And you think, you know, I can say something really cynical now, but the Bible tells me not to, so I won't. And it's by, it's by fighting against those things that just come up in you. They come up in you. In your, in your emotions, in your thoughts, and in your desires. You're about to say something. Come, sometimes these things come out over the lips before you even uh, had a chance to control them. But when you see that, then, then you just you, you cease it. You seek God's forgiveness, and you seek God's strength that these things would die. And there are other verses that, that, that speak of this. Paul talks about putting them off as filthy, smelly, evil clothes in Ephesians. The Lord says... In the, in, the Beatitude, in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about plucking them out. 
If your eye offend against thee, pluck it out. Remove them. There's, a, there's an active, active um, attitude that's involved in this thing. If you want to kill something, you're not just going to... If, if, if there's a bear in front of you and, and you've got a spear, and let's just say that spear could kill that little bear, a uh, little one, notice. Um, that just holding it in, fr- in front of it would not be enough. You would have to physically go in and try to get it into, into his heart, into his throat or whatever. You would have to make effort to kill it. And that's what the Lord desires us. I think I touched upon this recently, if not on the Lord's Day morning, is that the reason why we have hate is to do that. We should learn to hate sin. And, and part of that righteous hatred is to be active about getting rid of it. Of course, the mind, of course, those things that we've read here are, are in us to some degree because it's part of the sinful nature that we have since the fall in Adam. But the Lord says, put it off. He says, mortify it. He says, pluck it out. And he even uses the word crucify it. For they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Because the sin has been crucified on the cross. And therefore we are to live more and more unto righteousness and less and less unto sin. There's more that we could be said about the the practical application of this, but time is against us, even though we started later. And we'll leave that here, verses 1 to 11. Uh, But understand that the Lord is nigh to all them that call upon him. And we'll see that, God willing, in the last part of Psalm 10. Let us close in prayer, please. O Lord God, we do thank thee for thy word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Lord, how it has shone some terrible and awkward truths even into our own lives as we've considered yes this as much as we would desire to think better of ourselves and as much as we may rejoice that the Lord has made a change in our lives and in our attitudes and our desires and yet we we must honestly admit with the truth of the scriptures that there is so much deep within although we've learned to control it to some degree that is so against the Lord And therefore, for the believer, that death is a sweet thing, although a fearful thing, naturally. But it is a sweet thing as our great enemy, the flesh, is done away with and is changed in the resurrection. O Lord, and we do give thee thanks for thy word, and we do pray that thou would enable us to be humbled by it, not using flesh to sanctify flesh. But we come before thee this evening. And pray for more of thy spirit, for grace from on high. O Lord, that we would know more of that mortifying, the plucking out, uh, the putting off uh, of the flesh, of the sinful nature. That we may have more of that sweet aroma of Christ. We pray thee this, O God, for thy help in the time of prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.